Live First Impressions podcast, where we talk about our love for Jane Austen and give a big middle finger to all those haters. I am Kristen, and I am joined by Maggie. Hi. And we are here to talk today about a very controversial subject. Extremely controversial subject. Extremely controversial. The movie adaptation Pride and Prejudice that came out in 2005, starring Keira Knightley and Matthew McFadden and directed by Joe Wright. We're here to, to talk about it. We have avoided this, or at least I have avoided talking about this adaptation for a long time because it's going to be, it, it has been a fraught topic, not only with me, but with the online Austin community as well. And I was a little bit afraid of it and I didn't want to make anybody mad at me, but I think we're going to be able to find our way through this without anybody wanting to cut a bitch. And so, yeah, so Maggie... Yes, you have done some background research, actually, on the film. I will admit I have not. I'm I'm going only off my impressions of the movie itself from having watched the movie. But Maggie has actually read further about the film and read some interviews and, and has some information about it as well. So we thought we would start by just talking overall impressions. Yes. Kristen, why don't you go first? <laughs> <laughs> well, I know Maggie wanted to start talking with talking about overall impressions. I will say that. My relationship with the film continues to be fraught, but I am not here to be mean or say mean things about it. I'm here to actually be supportive of it to a certain extent. However, I do have what I feel are critical criticisms of it that are, and I mean criticism in like the sense of like breaking it down, not not just being mean, right? But just a sort of like, like the academic sense of criticism, right? But there are some things that did also legitimately frustrate me. So if you came to Austin through PNP 2005, which is something I totally respect, if this is the way you came to Austin, you love this movie, it changed your life, or you took messages away from it, or it was your sexual awakening or whatever, and you, you can't bear to hear it criticized, don't, don't just rage listen to this podcast. It's okay not to listen to this podcast. Know that I respect you as an Austin fan. Part of the problem, actually is that I feel so guilty because just the other day, somebody commented on one of our podcast episodes and they said, lol, I'd love to hear you on crapping on Pride and Prejudice 2005. I feel like I'm the only person who hates it. And I saw that and I was like, that's really bad because I didn't know it was wrong or bad to crap on 2005 for a long time. Part of it was because I wasn't part of Austin social media. But when we started doing this podcast, I was very isolated in my Austin fandom. I, I genuinely didn't know there were Austin fans who like passionately love Jane Austen, the writer, and also passionately love this movie. And that's not to put this movie down. It's just it's a criticism of myself. Like I was not broad minded enough to get that people actually liked this movie and actually got to the source material through this movie and understood the source material through this movie. I thought it was a total train wreck and that nobody could like it. And that was on me. That was on me. I was wrong. <laughs> if you if you do like it, I respect you. I validate you. You also don't have to listen to this podcast. So <laughs> go out in the world. Be blessed. Namaste. You know, are they gone? <laughs> <laughs> Can I share my impression? Yes. Is that okay? No, I'm not done. <laughs> my joke of are they gone? I, I think that Pride and Prejudice 2005, I think it's a fine movie. I think that it is a good romance. I think that if you like historical drama romance, you'll enjoy it. 
I, as an Austin fan, I find it unsatisfying. Oh. As an adaptation, I find it unsatisfying. As a romantic drama film, I think it's fine. So for me, you have to look at how are you coming at it? Yes. Are you coming at it with all of your Austin uh, in knowledge and love of the book and genius and things like that? You will find it unsatisfying. If you're coming at it as a quick fix, romantic, historical drama, you will like it. I saw it in the theater actually with my mother and we got there late and we had to sit so close that my neck was like craned the whole time. But I remember liking it. I bought it on Blu-ray when it came out. And I've always said that it's fine for a quick fix. If you don't have six hours to watch the 1995 miniseries, the 2005 film is, will give you your Pride and Prejudice quick fix. But I, I do find it generally unsatisfying. That's what I, I mean. I was watching it, Maggie. I, I've watched it three times in preparation for this podcast. And I, I kept asking myself the whole time, you know, like if you had never read the book or seen the 95 movie and you came to this movie, would you be enjoying yourself right now? And I was trying to ask myself for an honest answer and it's impossible. It's impossible to get an honest answer. I would. I mean, and um, I did. Like, I don't mind watching it. It was on HBO the other day, and I, and Bay and I started watching it while we were eating lunch because, you know, it's fine. I, I always tell, like, when I say a film is unsatisfying, usually what I mean is when I'm watching it, I think about the other things yes. that I'd rather watch. And you cannot watch this outside of your own head if you are as passionate, like if 95 was life-changing for you and you'll always have a special relationship with it, it's impossible to come to 05 and watch it in a way that you can get out of your, at least I think so, watch it in a way that you can get out of your own head, just enjoy yourself, let let the source material not haunt you so closely that you have to be thinking of it every second. I guess I would say if I didn't know anything about Jane Austen and never read her work or seen 95, I would have liked Pride and Prejudice 05. If I had only read the book and I watched PNP 05, who's to say whether I could have gotten on board or not? You know what I mean? It's impossible to say. So I think uh, I'm taking a very long way of saying I've always been a biased watcher and feelings that I've had and things that I might want to criticize are unique to me. A lot of the things might be unique to me personally because of the relationship I have with 95. Now, Drunk Austin if you don't know, and I'm sure everybody does, is like a social media like behemoth, right? They're, they're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. They post every day. They're amazing. They post hilarious stuff. Uh, as, the, as the title of the accounts suggests, Drunk Austin is supposed to be funny. And they, you know, stir the pot and it's enjoyable and they, they cause conversation and everything. But uh, they have always been a really strong advocate for 05 against the... 95 lovers of the world who want to crap on 05, such as myself. And I didn't know. Again, I didn't know. But like now that I do know that there are people who are mean to the 05 people and say only 95 people are true fans. Nobody can like judge you as a fan. Like nobody can judge fandom. There's no like objective measure of are you a good enough fan? That's I would never say that or believe that. Um, but they did this tweet, and I'm gonna I'm gonna read it because you'll immediately understand my feelings about it. So um, it was Robin. Drunk Austin is actually two people, Bianca and Robin. And so Robin tweeted, "Unpopular opinion. Y'all hang on to the 95 PNP because it was the first adaptation you saw, and Colin Firth was part of your sexual awakening, not because 95 is any better than the 05 movie." 
and maybe Karen 05 is that for other fans and we should accept all fans as they come. Which is a beautiful message that I totally agree with on the last part. 05 is for some fans, 95 is for other fans. We should accept all fans as they come. The part about 95 PMP is part of my sexual awakening, and that's the only reason why I'm cropping on 05. That is not true. And so it does. <laughs> do you feel personally called out by this tweet? <laughs> I posted this on my personal face, private Facebook page, not the not our podcast Facebook page, but our private Facebook page. Because <laughs> I was like, this is hilarious. Because because obviously my relationship with 95 is so legend and like saved my life and whatever. But I posted this and I was like, I'm just another white woman who was fine with Karen until she was called Karen. (laughs) (laughs) Because I thought it was funny, right? And I posted also that when we would be watching 05 to do a podcast on it. One of my friends came on and she was like, oh, you should do a double header with a Bronte movie. And this was my response. I was like, well, technically, 05 qualifies as a Bronte movie. (laughs) So that is my... Beef. Is it okay if I segue into this? Sure. Okay. This is my thing about 05. It has nothing to do with sexual awakenings. And I think it is a legitimate thing to say, to differentiate the two, maybe not even a criticism. But I feel like Joe Wright, which as you may not know, but Joe Wright is actually an anagram for Charlotte Bronte. I think that actually the ghost is a joke. Yeah, that's a joke. You can laugh. Uh, but I... <laughs> it's clearly not. Um, okay. I was, I, was, I was so confused by that, and I was so worried about you. And then I, I opened my mouth, and then I realized you were kidding, and that was what that exclamation, where I just, what? Kristen! Okay, so Joe Wright went on to have a very successful relationship, working, sorry, working relationship with Kira Knightley after this, including atonement. Oh, yes. Yeah, like they have, he has won Oscars. So the ghost um, of Charlotte Bronte is winning Oscars is what you're telling me. I, I don't know. I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. And I'm not sure that even if we talked to Joe Wright, that he would disagree. No, and he, I don't know. I haven't read any interviews with him and that's on me for being a bad research searcher, but I thought it would upset me. No, you don't have to. The film should stand on its own, first of all. I looked up this stuff because I find it interesting. And I also knew Kristen was going to be like, why would they do this? And I wanted (laughs) to be like, well, Kristen, according to the Wikipedia article. (laughs) Let Um, me read you, because I think this is important. There is a quote from Charlotte Bronte. Here's the quote from Charlotte Bronte. I had not seen Pride and Prejudice till I read that sentence of yours, and then I got the book. And what did I find? An accurate, daguerreotyped portrait of a commonplace face. A carefully fenced, highly cultivated garden with neat borders and delicate flowers. But no glance of a bright, vivid physiognomy. No open country. No fresh air. No blue hill. No Bonnie Beck. I should hardly like to live with her ladies and gentlemen in their elegant but confined houses okay she finds it unvaring and confined oh, yeah <laughs> that, I, uh, it is i it's i know that that's a charlotte bronte Ponte quote it is stuck in my mind ever since i read it because it made me enraged when i read it because i cannot handle apparently other people having different tastes than me but it just makes you want to be like listen but charlotte 
When you watch Oh Just Fine. because there's no, like, schizophrenic wife locked in the attic doesn't mean that it's unvarying. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know what? I read this book, and I, I thought it was okay, but you know what? There was there was no murder wife, secret murder wife. Yeah. And so that, for me, it wasn't, it was just okay, dog. Um, <laughs> and so I feel like, I feel like Joe Wright was kind of like, when he made Oh Five, he was like, okay. Austin fans can have a little Bronte as a treat, right? Because what I'm going to do is I'm going to take this story and I'm going to set it in the most stunning landscapes you've ever seen. And there's going to be rain and there's going to be cliffs and there's going to be a Grecian temple and Heathcliff is going to, I mean, Darcy is going to come over the moors, right? And Okay, but that uh, part is pretty hot. <laughs> I hate that part. So um, I can tell you that his stated goal was to ground the film in a larger sense of realism, which is clear with the kind of darkness of a lot of the, the compare. If you compare it to the miniseries, right? Cause that's what everybody's doing. We're comparing it to the miniseries. Things are darker. Everything is more crowded. It's there's like literal dirtier. It's literally dirtier because he wanted it to have this more like realistic, earthy feel which I get it's not something that I it's not an aesthetic that I responded to personally and whether that is based on my love for the 1995 miniseries or not I still just didn't respond to it great but there was a purposeful attempt to make it purely a romance and to make it in this like realism world interesting so he did a a purposeful attempt to focus on the romance was that something oh yes you can look at the way that this film was marketed to really understand what was going on. In the first trailer, what it says is from the producers of Bridget Jones' Diary, right? So the they don't even really talk about the Austin connection in the marketing. It's all about, from the producers of Bridget Jones' Diary, we want to get the people who enjoyed love actually. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a romantic film. And they want to get younger people. You've got Keira Knightley. I mean, she was like hot shit. I mean, she still is hot shit. But Keira Knightley in 2005 was like on the cusp, right? Just She'd just done Pirates of the Caribbean. She is your spunky ingenue. And so it's very clear that that is the path they're going. We want those teenage girls who love the romance with like a dash of comedy and want to see real English life. So this is actually allows me to say this with a little more confidence in that I think a lot of Austin fans get frustrated, the same Austin fans that get frustrated when they turn to Jane Austen fan fiction, where the romance is there, yes, and the romances are compelling, yes, but you're missing so much. I guess this is my bottom line. I'm coming to way early. You're missing so much of the comedy and the scathing like social satire and here's the other thing about austin and bronte right like i have only taken one english course in my whole life on these two women i never took any english or writing courses in college i have a science degree i minored in chinese like i took absolutely no humanities in college (laughs) but i do know that the brontes like in the mid 19th century and they're much more about oh the landscape is a character right nature passion and we have so much of a landscape inserting itself into this 
Right. So when you take Pride of Prejudice and, and you, then you say, look, everybody, look at the beautiful landscape. What you've missed is that Austin is supposed to zero in on a social landscape. This is all about your social landscape. It's so all about you, um, your emotional investment and what's happening around you socially. And when you do take these things like this, this first proposal, right, which is supposed to happen in this airless drawing room. I mean, that's the world that Jane Austen was in and trying to portray. I, I shouldn't make these assertions. I don't know. The more I was watching this movie and asking myself, hey, if Jane Austen could see this, I think I'm confident in saying that she would think this is different than what I wrote and had intended. Hey, how about we do it in like a Grecian temple yeah, 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 in the yeah. pouring rain? Would she say, uh, I'm down with this? Or would she say like, whoa, what? This is crazy. You know, this is way different than what I she'd wanted. She'd probably say, how did she get there? And Why? <laughs> And how did he follow her that closely without her knowing? That's probably what she would say. (laughs) And I just, like, I see what they're going, they're going for sweeping romance, but I don't think Pride and Prejudice is a sweeping romance. The thing about it. Can I I mention one thing that I have a big issue with? Please. I just have to point out that this film rockets through plots. (laughs) <laughs> at an incredible pace. And I feel like there's no room for any of it to breathe. And you mentioned this earlier when we were just chit-chatting. You know, Wickham is in like two scenes. Yeah. And there's just no, everything just happens so quickly that you're just kind of reeling. And I'm sure if you weren't familiar with the story, it would be kind of confusing who all these people are and how they all know each other. I agree with you. And I was gonna, I, I was feeling that same frustration too. I think that a fair counter argument is that it's they were only allowed two hours and twenty minutes or whatever they got. They I think they made a valiant effort to cover as much plot as possible while keeping it coherent and understandable. But I felt the same frustration because you're like all your favorite things from the book are are are, are missed. I mean I understand it's movie making. It's it's a different medium. Whatever. I'm not gonna harp on that. Right. Another, well, an issue with speeding through the plot like this is that they have also actually messed with the structure of the plot itself from the novel. So when Charlotte Bronte says that it's a perfectly cultivated, fenced-in garden, that's not an insult because Pride and Prejudice is actually a beautifully structured novel. And it is a novel about these two people changing in positive ways and then finding their way to each other. For example, the letter from the proposal and the letter from Darcy is a huge moment in Lizzie in terms of realizing deficiencies in her own character. And there's none of that. It's supposed to happen in the middle. That is the pivot point for the entire plot where all of these assumptions she had about Darcy and what she thought to be true is proven completely wrong. That did not happen. The reason we come back to Pride and Prejudice is the er love story time and time again is because of the personal growth is so compelling. The personal growth, the changes, the realizations that crash upon them, the, the, the small emotional transactions that build and build and build are so compelling. What we have here with O5, partly because they had to squish it into a movie, but I think partly also because of the window dressing they forced upon it is more situational things are supposed to bring them together. And we get less, I mean, there are some some nice moments, but here's the thing. Here's what I was thinking. Last night, 
I watched Twilight. Okay. Does anyone remember 2008, <laughs> the books and the movie? Twilight. Cast your minds back. Yes, please. To a more Swan. innocent time. <laughs> Edward Cullen. <laughs> it's the love story we needed in 2008. And Stephanie Meyer totally thought it was Austin-esque. Actually, this story kind of parallels Pride and Precious in a certain way. What especially at the beginning. The- Fuck. No, especially the beginning. But here's the thing. <laughs> oh, here's the thing. I was watching it. And I was like, here's the thing. Like, I fucking love Twilight. I wanted to inject it into my veins. I saw it five times in the theaters. You know, you turned me on to the books. There is nothing oh. wrong with a oh, heightened. I mean, they're trash, but they are entertaining. Oh, God. Right? Yes. And there is nothing wrong with them. And there is also nothing wrong with loving a love story, a movie that is heightened reality where there's yeah. teen angst and everything just matters so much. And But their relationship is not built on a million little personal transactions and them getting to know each other. It's built on visceral feelings and he comes to you and this is their proposal scene, right? Where he's like, he comes to you, he's like, I don't have the strength to stay away from you. And she's like, you're a fucking vampire, right? <laughs> that, <laughs> that is sort of an analogous to what's happening with the pr- first proposal team where Darcy can't stay away from her. And Elizabeth is like, you're an emotional vampire, right? Like, essentially, that's what she's saying, right? And there's nothing wrong with loving the trappings, the Pacific Northwest, the pouring rain, the vistas, the beaches, the the sparkles. There's nothing wrong with that at all. That's great. However, when you take something that is so sacred and incredibly brilliant and you take that and you sort of superimpose it onto something that feels like window dressing and distract people with the, the, the pouring rain and and these the things that don't quite make sense. Like, why would they be fighting? Why would she reject him and then say something that makes him mad? Like, oh, wicked. And then he steps toward her like they're going to passionately smooch. Yeah, like, they're just hot. But that's what I'm saying. It doesn't make sense. Right? So all this no, stuff no, that's I hot agree, in this totally doesn't totally make a lot of freaking sense. Let me and, tell you what I think happened with a lot of this, if I may. The original screenplay for this movie was written by a screenwriter named, I hope I pronounced her name correctly, but I believe it's Deborah Mogach or Mogach or Mogach. I don't know. By a woman. And she wanted to make her script as faithful to the novel as possible. She almost all of the dialogue was from the book and the structure was very much like the book. And when they gave it to Joe Wright, he quote, encouraged greater deviation from the text, including changing the time it was set. This film is actually set in 1797, not 1813, because apparently Joe Wright really doesn't like empire waist dresses. Anyway, and changing kind of the family dynamic. But my And they wanted to modernize some of the language. But what I have a feeling happened is that the director, who is a man wanted the trappings of what he thinks women want in a romance. (laughs) Women want pouring rain. Women want sweeping vistas. This is what's romantic. But I don't think that's true. Not always. Sometimes. Um, 
sometimes, but, I, but to say like, this is what women want. Like sometimes, right. yeah. some hashtag, not all women. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So some people love the 2005 Pride and Prejudice because that's what they want. But if you don't necessarily always want that or don't want it here, you're not going to respond to it. And I do want to also point out that Emma Thompson did a script polish on this and she asked to be uncredited, <gasps> not because she was like embarrassed or whatever, but she probably just, you know, I don't want to draw from the people who actually wrote it, but okay. yes, Emma Thompson did do a script polish. On I this. thought that was the ultimate slam, but let me say, and let me say, change your hashtag to hashtag not all stories, right? Like not all stories need that treatment in order to have the oomph that they could have. And in fact, Pride and Prejudice doesn't need that treatment to have that oomph. And maybe it's still, maybe there was enough of the original story and the original dialogue left to still convey. Maybe there were women just like me, but five years, 10 years younger, or whatever, sitting in the theater in that piano scene, they did to their credit, still keep the, um, I do not have the ability to talk to strangers that I don't know. And she says, maybe you should practice more. And it's still a good moment. Um, they yeah. still kept some good things in maybe, but I, I do feel can like we, a lot of that. Can we talk about things that we liked at some point? Yes, no. And I let me say this too. Let me say this too, because I can see people liking this movie, not just for the things that you said with the beautiful over the top, but some people may organically be drawn to this movie more because of certain things like the whirlwind dialogue, the rap, rap, rap dialogue, which I hate and some people might love the Kitty and Lydia screaming and talking over each other and nobody can understand what they're saying. The organic, you know, the the whirling camera work when, when Darcy and Lizzie are dancing, all the things that I felt took away, some people may have been drawn in. And so if if some of the decisions that Joe Wright made drew people into the, the story that might otherwise have been lost by watching 95 and thinking this is too stiff and formal. It's so long. Like, why are they always standing yeah. around? How many times do they have to dance? How is this six hours long? Yes. I, then I think that's fine. Some of the choices that he made, while I thought they were unnecessary, might have drawn other people in and they might have been good choices for those people. And I am, I'm willing to accept that. But yes, let's talk about other things that you liked. Oh, okay, cool. So, there were some things that I liked. First of all, this cast, there are so many really great actors in this cast. It's pretty amazing. So you've got that going for it. I actually, one of the things I really liked about this, I know some people are like, only Colin Firth is Darcy, only Matthew McFadden is Darcy. For me, I enjoyed parts of Matthew McFadden's performance. Sometimes he's a total dick and I was just yelling at the screen, why are you such a dick? But things I really liked is you could sometimes see him talking to Elizabeth and you could just hear the voice that's inside his head saying like, why did you just say that? Why don't you say something? You need to ask her a question. This is, why are you so awkward? Why are you so awkward? You could see that kind of happening behind his eyes. And I really loved that. For the most part, I also really enjoy McFadden's performance. And there is a moment after the piano scene where she says, you need to practice. Then he shows up the next day at the parsonage to see it her. It's so awkward. It's so awkward. But she says, can I offer you some tea? And he's like, no, God, he's in agony. And he's like, oh, God, the last thing I want is tea, you know, and it's yeah. cute and it's effect. It's affecting. I feel for him. The moments when I got close closest to being on this movie's side 
is when McFadden shows the vulnerability that I believe is there underneath the surface of Darcy. But let me, uh, if you, do you want to respond? Because you can, because I'm about to freight train into something slightly different. I had other things I wanted to say. I like. Go ahead. Uh, I really uh, loved when Darcy and Elizabeth dance at Netherfield, how it's one, it's the tracking on, well, it's not really tracking shot because the camera doesn't move, but it is one take. And that is very impressive. And it adds to the chemistry that they have in that scene until they cut away to where it looks like they're now, the whole world has dropped away and they are just dancing alone. It is one uninterrupted take. And that is really beautifully done. Um, I really like Rosamund Pike as Jane. I thought she was really great. I love that Lizzie, when she's at Rosings and plays the piano, it's the theme to the film. Mm-hmm. And then later when she's at Pemberley and she hears Georgiana playing the piano, it's the same song. Yep. Like perhaps maybe Darcy remembers her playing it and gave Georgiana the music for it because he now associates that with Lizzie. I think the cast is so good. I know you have strong feelings about <laughs> Donald uh-huh. Well, let me but say... Is, there are parts about this film I really enjoy. The tracking sure. shot at the end where he appears from the mist, it's eye-rolling, but I still like it. Because <laughs> I do sometimes like those romantic sure. things that happen. Sure, uh, sure. Who hasn't been alone and feeling terrible and just wished the person... A man would come out of appear, the mist. Right? Yeah. Well, here's the thing, though. I hated the tracking shot at Netherfield at the dance. And this is my, I understand this is my personal thing. You're talking about the actual tracking shot where the camera is just like winding through all the rooms and following people around. Well, that, that didn't bother me. Actually, I thought that was very clever and I kind of liked it. But when they are dancing at Netherfield, the camera sort of whirls around them in like a, like a 180 kind of a a loop. And, but here's the thing. Here's, I'll, I'll be less specific than that. There are a lot of beautiful tracking shots that uh, scream cinema in all caps, right? Like yes. this is a this is brilliant directing. When I notice those things, I actually hate and resent them in Austin oh, adaptations. It takes you out of it. Yes, because now I'm thinking about the cinema and not about the story, and that's what happens in this movie. And I apologize, but that, that's just the way I feel about it. But by this morning, when I was watching it for a fifth time, I actually loved the way that they did the ball at Netherfield where they're tracking through different things and different people. And, and it was visually dynamic and it was interesting and it was fun. And it was, it was clever. It was honestly, it was just darn downright clever. And I was like, you know what? I like this. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to be on the side, but here's the thing about that. This movie that I don't like is like, okay, Joe Wright wanted to do it in the 17, late 1700s. First of all, that's stupid because none of the men had white hair. So tell Joe Wright that, you know, <laughs> like his oh, uh, of yeah, hang on just a um, Dear Mr. Wright, <laughs> I recently finished watching your 2000 film Pride and Prejudice, and I could not take stand without telling you that in 19, 1797, gentlemen would not have white wigs. Sincerely, uh, Margaret Riley, P.S. I trust your family is in good health. <laughs> Am I wrong, though? Like, if he wants to dress as a certain style... I mean, the hair powder tax didn't happen until the early 19th century, right? Am I wrong about it? I'm not great about my history on this, but I, I feel like I must be right. The other I think thing- that th- they say that they wanted to ground this movie in realism, but I think the actual truth is they wanted to ground it in postmodern realism. 
So Lizzie shows up at Netherfield having walked across the three miles or whatever, and her hair is down. I mean, come on. So I don't want to be one of those people who's like, oh, God, there's no center part. I can't deal with this movie. Yeah, 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 but yeah, I mean, yeah. some things, it just takes you out of the world. It's like when you create a sci-fi or a fantasy world and people nitpick at it. The problem is, is that you, when you world build, you have to be consistent. So if you're trying to make it realistic in 1797, when you have Kira Knightley running around looking like she just threw on a dress from her closet in 2005, I mean, you're, ta- it, it's hard to stay in that world. I, or, I oh God, can we talk about, <laughs> this is so, this is so dumb. This is so nitpicky, but it just like drives me crazy. Caroline Bingley wearing mm. a sleeveless mm-hmm. dress mm. with spaghetti straps to the ball. I, mean, I hear you. Okay. But here's the other thing about your, your postmodern realism versus historical realism. I totally buy that. And thank you for making that distinction clear because not only did they make Darcy as a character, awkward socially awkward clearly socially awkward and just has no idea how to be a person in the world they also did it to both mr bingley who is incredibly insecure and awkward and doesn't know how to have a conversation etc they also did it to mr collins and we're also supposed to feel sorry for mr collins for being socially awkward which takes the the darcy storyline and just smears it all around over to every male character which bothers me, but is also unrealistic. I mean, you and Darcy, even though I like McFadden's, some of the work he's done in the first 25% of the film, it's a hot mess because (laughs) he's not, he's not proud. He's, and he's a complete a-hole. Well, he's an awkward mess in a way that is far too visible to the people around him. Like these guys, Bingley, Darcy, they're to the manor born, right? They have everybody's nose so far up their ass since the very day they popped out of their mom that they would have, and they would have what Darcy has, which if they are insecure, it's a hollow self-consequence, right? Their outward shell would be so, I am the shit towards everybody. (laughs) Because that is the message that they have been given since birth, is that you are the most important around person around. You are the most important person in your household. When you go out in the world, everybody will be, you know, deferring to you, and all the women will be laughing and falling over themselves. You wouldn't have this sort of very visible, heart on my sleeve, I'm shy sort of thing that Bingley has going on. It's adorable, and I mean, I love it, but... In this story, and certainly British audiences, like, are, you know, are used to this idea of the the master, the young master, right, being just like the most puffed up, arrogant jerk imaginable. I think think that with Bingley, he's supposed, I mean, he's kind of, what do people, he's like the golden retriever person, but it almost, it's supposed to be like, everyone is so delighted with him because nobody really expects him to be so friendly or open. So I don't know. Yeah. They definitely made him dumb too. I mean, and it was a dumbness that comes out of, um, it's the same way that I'm dumb when I try to have a conversation with people that I don't know. And I'm really nervous. It's like the weird things that pop out of your mouth and you ramble, which I kind of loved. Like I kind of loved his portrayal. But especially at the end where he leaves and he has to role, role play with Darcy about what, which is, which was adorable. It doesn't quite fit the characters in these stories 
from a historical standpoint of who they were and what the messages they would have heard of all. Maybe I'm being too unfair, but that leads me to the other thing, which, which is, I thought it was such a weird and fascinating decision to make Mr. Collins an object of the audience's pity. Oh, okay. I, yes. Okay. I had the exact same thought. Here's what I think is happening. So I need to look up the name of the actor because he's Tom Hollander. Okay. That's Tom Hollander. He was also in Pirates of the Caribbean with Keira Knightley. He, and he's been in everything. He is a total, Hey, it's that guy when you're watching movies, but he is such a good actor that he actually is very charismatic. He, Mr. Collins, we're not, it's not supposed to have so much pathos. Yes. He's supposed to be ridiculous. Well, the and first problem is that Tom Hollander is a sleeper babe. He is right. A yeah, babe. no, he is cute. He's short, he but he, I mean, come on, he's cute. <laughs> so, like, you get you get the visual comedy of him like coming up behind Darcy and not even like clearing his shoulder and having to like pat like <clears throat> to get his attention. Like, oh, haha, it's funny. Darcy's so tall and noble, and this guy is like whatever. But he's good looking, and he is just too good at making you like him. Yeah. And I almost feel it works against the plot here. Works against Lizzie and also works against what Austin was trying to do because he clearly loves Elizabeth with no basis in who she is or her personality or anything. He doesn't actually love her at all. And that's supposed to be a slam on this Regency society. Like Lizzie's going to be forced into marrying this man whose whose affection for her must be imaginary and instead, what we're what we're seeing is him laying this little flower down in front of her plate. I mean, I they took oh my god, just okay. But the scene that really does it is during one of those long Netherfield ball tracking yes, shots. Yes, we yes. see him standing alone in a crowded room, picking the petals off a flower like a "She loves me, she loves me not," looking very uncomfortable and sad. And you're just like, oh my god, Mr. Collins, you're not supposed to feel that way. <laughs> I know. And then the next morning, Lizzie is shouting at him like, Mr. Collins. And it's like, give that poor sweetheart a break, which is. But the comedy of when she runs out and Mrs. Bennett chases her. <laughs> that is, that is, uh, it is funny, right? That it, is it, funny. It, it, she runs after her. But then they cut back to Mr. Collins and it's so humiliating. And then when and everybody feels so yes. sad and they're all laughing and even Jane mm-hmm. is laughing when, in, when in the so book, bad. I feel so bad for him. And then you're also, not when the book, he has this natural self consequence, which totally dispels any sort of pity. The thing, my whole thing about this movie about P and P O five and there's no, I mean, it's really hard to say it's good. It's bad overall, whatever, but let me ask you, and the audience to consider this metric, okay? People who watch 05, PNP 05, and who have, who have no other frame of reference for the story Pride and Prejudice, and they love it, right? I loved the movie Pride and Prejudice 2005, directed by Joe Wright. You give them the book Pride and Prejudice, and you ask them to read it, and then you come back to them and you say, were you surprised? what things surprised you about the source material versus this movie that you're obsessed with? And there are going to be quite a few things that are different and that make people go, oh, I was really looking forward to the part where he said, you've bewitched me, mind, body, and soul. You know what I, you know what I yeah. mean? 
uh, when he was walking in the mist over the heath, when Mr. Collins had this little flower. A lot of things are different and would surprise you and were totally different than what Austin intended to portray or convey that I think um, this, is the, this is the genesis of when people say 95 is better, the word better is offensive to a lot of people and I understand why we shouldn't use it. 95 better is kind of, it, better to me has more like subjective yes. connotations and objective. You, but, I mean, first, they are different mediums too. A miniseries is different from a oh, like, very, theatrical very film. different. Six hours is very different to two hours, very different. And it is understandable. But when you gave the book to the 95 viewers and you asked them how much was different, at least I was shocked by how much was the same. Yeah. And, um, you know, there are a few scenes that have slightly different tonality in the book from the miniseries, but. You know, somebody said, somebody said in that thread of that, that drunk Austin tweet that I was talking about, I was reading all the comments, right? And somebody said, at least Matthew McFadden smiles other than the last scene. Be, they, they, this, this person said, the BBC gave us six hours of Colin Firth and he couldn't parallel the warmth that Matthew McFadden had anytime he smiled kind of thing. Hmm, interesting. And I was like, the BBC I don't feel that way, but okay. trying to make... BBC was trying to make a accurate faithful. adaptation, faithful. A f- yes, thank you. That's a better word. A faithful adaptation. The word warm, warmth, is not a word that I would ever apply to Darcy. Even after the propo- final proposal, even after they're in love together, he still has a lot of growing to do. As Lizzie said, he has yet to learn to be laughed at. Yeah, and. I mean, if you're in love with Matthew McFadden for the warmth that he's conveying, that's great. He's a great Darcy for many reasons, but that's not what's in the book. And I think it's fair to say that. You know what I mean? I think it's fair to point out that what's in 05 is not always what's in the book. I I have mentioned one more thing that I really like, but first responding to you I feel kind of similarly about this movie as I do about the recent Sanditon miniseries. (laughs) If you just divorce it from the source material, it's, for me, more enjoyable. Like, if I don't think about this as an adaptation of the novel, it's fine. It's great. I can enjoy it much more. Because then I'm not like, oh, God, this and this and this, right? Because you just see it as its own story, so that's what I kind of have to do in my head. Right. I just yes. kind of sit back and watch it. And it's that quick fix, like two and a half hours, very romantic characters. I love. We're good. Uh, the other see, thing I me... wanted to mention that I really liked is I really liked Charlotte. In oh, I love Charlotte. I thought she was so great. Good. They, they kind of buffed up her being the real talk with Lizzie. And when Lizzie visits her, Outside Rosings, I love that Charlotte has kind of drunk the Kool-Aid. Yeah, she has. Yes, she's watching Mr. Collins with this rapt attention while he's giving his Yes, and when she goes to Rosings, she's, don't worry, just wear whatever you brought that's most fine. My, like, poor friend who's not (laughs) as good as me now. I just, I thought that was really interesting, and I really loved it. And I think that the point of it is we're supposed to add to this, we're supposed to have this feeling of Lizzie is becoming increasingly isolated 
from the people that she was once most close to. You know, when she goes home and sees Jane and Jane says, so what happened in Hertfordshire? And she's like, nothing. It's she's She is no longer able to fully confide in the people she once had. And so it's led to this kind of isolation. And so it makes sense when you have Charlotte then kind of having moved past her. They did a great job. Some of the other supporting actors, though, while they were good, I... It was I couldn't move beyond the original portrayals in the '95. For example, Sir William Lucas was much less fun in '05. Well, we hardly saw him at all. Well, even when we did see him, he was a low energy Sir William Lucas. And then the gardeners were much less fun. Instead of casting somebody like super sweet, they cast Penelope, what's her name from Down Abbey, who's supposed to be sort of a grating presence on people. I guess. Oh, I thought she was good. I thought that they were both fine. I just. Lizzie walks into the, again, like speeding through the plot, Lizzie walks into the kitchen and they're both in there. And I was just like, wait, what? When did they (laughs) say that the gardeners were coming? When did they establish that these are her aunt and uncle from the day? Was there dialogue? There must've been dialogue I missed where they're like, we brought Jane back or something. Yeah, Jane's back. But all of a sudden they're in the kitchen at Longbourn and they're like, come with us, Lizzie. And you'd be like, who are these people? (laughs) They, they just showed. Them. I wish someone would show up and invite me to the Peak District. Well, what's interesting about this movie is it trusted the audience so well in some respects to keep up, and then didn't show any trust in them in some other respects. And what I mean by that, especially, is that the first twenty-five percent of this movie was a hot mess. Not only, like I already said, McFadden's performance like weirded me out, but. Donald Sutherland's line. Oh, here we go. Here we go. <laughs> uh, wait, let me get my popcorn. Uh, where's the thing, though? Okay. The first time I saw this movie, I hated everything about his performance. But now I actually am kind of a convert, especially towards the end. He does some really good work. But to be fair, and I, I mean, hopefully a lot of people see where I'm coming from here. When he first comes on the scene, and he is a very large part in the first quarter of this movie... Every single line of his lands like a lead balloon. They're mumbled. They're quiet. You can barely understand them. While the girls are running around laughing and saying a million lines all at the same time. A lot of movies have done this in the past 10, 20 years. They're like, I'm going to have everything going on and a bunch of people saying lines at the same time. And the audience will get that, oh, they're just crazy girls. Maybe I'll catch a line here or there and it'll be funny. Yeah, right? It's this realism, right? If you have that. Ha- but again, this is like kind of a, I don't want to. But, assign blame where I can't, but this is a man making a movie about like a family with five women, six women in it. But it's like, oh, because but women are loud. They all talk at the same time and nobody listens. And it's crazy. Yes. And well, well and, maybe some families, but not every family. You're right, Maggie. But to be fair, in um, Greta Gerwig's recent Little Women, she has a lot of scenes where all the sisters are talking at the same time. And I loved it. That is, true. I, but, that is an excellent point. But, and I loved it because she, it was done so skillfully. But the thing is, maybe call me old school. I liked it when a show or a movie or a play has one actor deliver one line. We all get to absorb <laughs> it, understand it, understand what like it means. Boomer. Okay, boomer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Karen. Uh, and then another actor delivers a response. And we all absorb that. And we understand that. 95 had no problem portraying Kitty and Lydia and the insanity of that household without 
having this like over the top. It felt very forced. Okay, that's the distinction. Let, is. let me respond to what you said about the recent Little Women. I think that one of the differences too is that the literal lens that we're looking at the Bennets through, especially in the beginning of the movie, is all about showing them as ridiculous because we have to be convinced that Bingley and Darcy, like Darcy would be so against. So they're like talking over each other. Is It's all in the office of showing them as being silly and ridiculous. Yes. But I think when you watch the Little Women adaptation, it's meant to show them as like, they are real people. They have real relationships with each other. Also, that first, okay, I'm going back to tracking shots. The movie starts when Lizzie gets back to Netherfield. Uh, sorry, when she gets back to Longbourn, there's a big tracking shot through Longbourn yes. where we see all the different characters in the house. This drove me crazy, despite really liking tracking shots, because one of the main reasons why you use a tracking shot is to establish with the audience a map of a space. And as that camera wound through Longbourn, I had no effing idea what that house, I still don't <laughs> actually have any idea what that house really looks like. I know she went in through the back and I know there was a lot of laundry, but other than that, I have, and then we popped out in the front, but I can tell you nothing about the space that that how that that those characters were occupying because the camera didn't really care about establishing that for me it just cared about showing these loud silly women yeah crazy spaces that are cluttered and like at first I, that's, that could, that could very well i mean that probably is more like what would happen but it wasn't ugh, it was just there so we would be like wow, these people are so real. Yeah, what these a real... Don't, like, yeah. They, they leave shit everywhere. They the have like, pigs in their house. They have dogs running around and being dirty in their house. <laughs> um, sorry, that was a total tangent. But to, to talk about Donald Sutherland, we definitely have, again, a the redemption of Mr. Bennett going yes, on and here. To read an interview, I believe I read an interview with him back in 2005 where he's like, I think he's really a loving father. And it made no, me like punch through a wall. <laughs> yeah, like this is not what it's said. Why would you take a character and make it your own and not actually honor the most famous and beloved book in English literature, what it says about that character? And here's the thing too, when you contrast it, when you contrast all of this with 95, Benjamin Wittrow, I mean, love him, pour one out, you know, rest in peace. He is the comedic star of the show. And you get an immediate sense. This is funny. His relationship with his wife is going to be funny. I mean, so the, the, the redemption of Mr. Bennett started with the 1995 miniseries, because we talked about this before, how that actor also very charismatic and you just like him. But we continue that here when he tells, oh God, when he tells Mary to stop playing on the piano, he's then seen holding her and comforting her as she cries. Mr. Bennett doesn't give a shit. Come on. (laughs) But the problem is we've set up a Mr. Bennett as portrayed by Donald Sutherland. And then when Lizzie is trying to convince him not to let Lydia go to Brighton, he says, we will never have peace in this house if Lydia does not go. And then Lizzie says, is that all you really care about? But where is that coming from? When have we ever seen him compromise on interacting with his family for the sake of peace in that film? I think they tried to establish that when Collins is trying to propose to Elizabeth and 
she mouths Donald Sutherland's last last to leave the breakfast room, and she mouths, "Papa, stay," and he won't. He's too much of a coward. And so I, I thought that was the groundwork for this guy is a coward. When it comes, when the rubber hits the road, right? He is not willing to put in the the effort to save his daughters from humiliation, right? Yes, that wasn't that was not enough for me to have that make sense. Also, doesn't he go to the Lucases when they're first hanging? He's at the dance when Bingley and Darcy first show up. Yes. Is he there in the book? No. Yeah, because they have to recap ad nauseum. Yes. And he's like, yes, I was there. And I'm like, uh-huh. well, you're not supposed to be there. Like, you don't <laughs> care. You would, Mr. Bennett would be like, yes, yes, everyone, go to this dance. I will stay here and read. Please leave. <laughs> okay. But I'm glad to hear that you have somewhat come along around to Donald Sutherland. This is big news. It's because the, 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 the scene at the end, it is big news. You know, it is big news. The scene, the at, the scene end, at the end, I am quiet at my leisure, is very good. It's very good. When he cries and says, no one's worthy for you. You know what? I was really, I was, by the fifth time I watched it, I was on board. I was loosened up, right? And I was like, okay. But it's like I, it's like I said, going back to what I said, the first 25% of this movie is a hot mess. And it's, it's a hot mess for him. Let me tell you what I also think. And I understand I might be going on a limb here. I, I really think this is just me. The more I read and the more I hear other people's opinions, I think it's probably just a problem with me, right? I love Keira Knightley as an actress. She was fantastic in many things I've seen. Um, Bend It Like Beckham was amazing. The Duchess was amazing. This movie, and she's a theory, you know, I'm going to say something negative about her. She's still in on the ladder of life far above me, okay? So don't act like I'm kicking her when she's down. To me, one of the reasons I can't enjoy this movie she has never been Elizabeth Bennett. She's always been the actress Kira Knightley trying to appear like the spunky ingenue, to borrow your term. In the first 25% of this movie, she has to make us love her and think, oh, she's a delight, right? And so what she does to achieve this is to plaster this huge grimace of a smile on her face at all times is to force an affected laugh when it doesn't make any sense for someone to be laughing, is to sort of duck her head and sort of dart her eyes around and sort of really play up this, like, I'm so delightful. Oh, I'm delight. I'm lively and I'm funny. And, oh, by the way, I'm bookish. Like, we both complain about it. Like, we've been texting, like, in the first scene, instead of running along, she's reading a book. And Maggie, you said something which I really well, agreed with. Yeah, let me well let me tell you, she is not Elizabeth Bennett to me either because she's clearly meant to be Joe March. Yes, she's Joe March. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, Joe Wright, the director, has been very open that he wasn't sure about casting her at first because he thought she would be too beautiful, and then he met her and he said, "Oh, she's a tomboy. It's perfect." <laughs> like he's on the record multiple times of saying that to him. Elizabeth Bennett needs to be a tomboy, which. Okay. Nothing wrong with being a tomboy. That's great. But I'm not sure Lizzie Bennett, like I don't read that book and I'm not like, what a tomboy. Um, I, he wants to make her Joe March. She's reading a book. When we first meet her, she rejects these traditional ideas. Like when Charlotte espouses these kind of traditional ideas, it's not just like, Oh, Charlotte, like, what are you saying? No, like she doesn't, they made her, she's kind of a different character. 
which works in the film. Like, again, if you divorce it from the source material, it's fine. She comes across so wacky in the first, like in the, in the, in the first ball scene. And she's just like randomly laughing out loud at weird times. I mean, it's like really forced and it doesn't seem natural at all. And I have realized in watching it again and again, that if I could just get over that hump, that it's okay. The other time she does it, that just drives me up the freaking wall is when, by the way, this is horrifying, but like when Darcy and Georgiana like hug and he twirls her around or whatever, and they look and she's like spying on them through the door. <laughs> her real know. Catherine Moreland moment there, right? Um, mm-hmm. When he chases her out onto the like veranda or wherever they are, she is very unnatural again. There's like, smiling, looking all right, darting her I mean, she's supposed to be very She's supposed to be nervous, but it doesn't, it's not acting like a person who is nervous. It's acting like a person who is supposed to be spunky. And it really irritates the crap out of me. Carp out of me. I, I, the carp out of me. I do not have the same level of negative response to her in this as you seem to. I just want to say, yeah, I thought she was okay. I mean, she's fine, whatever. Like I said, I, she's more of Joe March than she is Lizzie Bennett, but I don't have the same kind of negative reaction that you did. Well, I think I'm the only one because a lot of people seem to think that she's the er Elizabeth Bennett. And I guess the only thing that's tomboyish about her in the book is that she's running. She likes yeah. to run. But I mean, that's not enough to make, to a tomboy make. You know what I mean? No, um, I agree. We, ta- we, we have to talk about, though, the other thing that makes the story a lot weaker is that you just don't see Wickham at all. You don't have a chance to mistrust Wickham at all. Uh, you don't have a lot to, a chance to see his inconsistencies at all. Yeah. Elizabeth's belief in Wickham seems totally rational. And so when she's like, I've been a fool, it's like, well, no, you, 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 you I mean... He's just a dude that you talked to twice. Like, he was in, I know he was. Yes, he was in this twice, and um, she asked him <laughs> about his history too. So yes. it's not one of the one of the things that kind of makes you as a reader be like, I don't know, is how eager he is so to tell cool. her, right? But in this version, they're just like kind of hanging out, and she's like, so he has no inconsistency. He never swears never to expose Darcy for the sake of his father, and then immediately exposing Darcy. <laughs> he also looks so much like Orlando Bloom. <gasps> oh my God, thank you so much. Yes, I was telling Bay this. I was like, what you mean? He was like, where have I seen that guy who plays Wickham before? I said, oh, is it because he looks just like Orlando Bloom? And he didn't <laughs> see it. But to me, it's, they like they wanted to get Orlando Bloom, but they couldn't afford Orlando Bloom, so they got this guy. <laughs> Kevin's nickname for Wickham in this movie God. is Borlando Bloom. <laughs> <laughs> he's not, I mean, he's a great actor. He just has two scenes and like, he, I mean, it's just, it, he's not a presence. And so when she brings up Wickham and he's like, Wickham, and, and I feel like normal viewers would be like, who? <laughs> Yeah, there's this is the problem with rocketing through the plot like this, though. Like, it's very difficult to keep who's who straight. Um, so speaking of husband saying stupid things while I was watching this with Bay, um, do you remember how we met me and Bay? We yeah. met at an 80s cover band concert and we magnetic. Yes, it was magnetic, right? Uh, he, we were watching, and it was during the Netherfield Ball sign. And he looks at me, he goes, "Do you remember when we met at the Netherfield Ball when you were dressed <laughs> like Anna?" <laughs> <laughs> 
And I was like, yeah, okay. Because then I was just imagining all these people at the Netherfield Ball if it was like an 80s concert. I said it would be the 1780s. <laughs> that's, that's great, though. Great, good one, Bay. And like, if you don't know, which you probably don't, which, why would you? But uh, Bay saw Maggie at this, met Maggie at this um, 80s dance party. I believe it was the live band, right? It was the Leg Warmers. It's an 80s The Leg Warmers band. in yeah. D.C. There's this band, the Leg Warmers. Maggie does the best 1980s costumes and makeup you've ever seen. And when Bay saw her, the, he, I heard this story third hand, but apparently he said she was magnetic. Did he really say that? Yeah, it was at your wedding. Aww. Somebody said this at your wedding. And like That's 100% Maggie is magnetic at the leg warmers performances because I have been there and have been magnetically attracted to her myself. <laughs> she looks amazing. Well, I guess it depends on which way you flipped your magnet because I guess it could also <laughs> go the other way where you're just like, nope. <laughs> you're like, I don't want any part of this. It's crazy, girl. Flip your magnet. I you love that. just cut loose that. on the 80s dance floor. That's amazing. This is amazing. That is so amazing. Um, yeah. So yeah. So what were we talking about? I don't know, but I, I think know. that we're kind of beating the horse at this point. Oh, and I don't uh, mean to. Okay, Judy, let me sit. Let's talk about some other things that are fine. The score was fine. Oh, I love the score. Actually, I do really love the score. I think it's very beautiful. Judy Dench was fine. Judy Dench <laughs> Apparently, the director wrote her an email to convince her to take the role, and he said, I love it when you play a bitch. (laughs) The thing is, I mean, in the heightened world, the heightened, surreal world of P&P 2005, she comes in the middle of the night. Of course, because she has to have driven all day, right? Because she, she never stopped. She just drove until they got there, even if it was at midnight. That's something Jane Austen would not endorse. I mean, nobody would do that back then. Nobody would do that, right? And Colonel Fitzwilliam is the most adorable Ed Sheeran look. Bless, bless. He's so chubs, though. He's like, they have to make him so chubby. I want to pinch his cheeks. By the way, let me talk about that scene, right? It's the scenes with Colonel Fitzwilliam, and he has very few, but when he tells uh, Lizzie, you know, Kira Knightley about what Darcy has done. He's detached Bingley from Jane, right? Mr. Collins is giving a sermon, but if you actually listen to the words of the sermon, it's about pride, and he's about the... He's pr- like, the proud man looks at everyone like an enemy, and it's actually, like, a really beautiful moment. And the other beautiful moment that I want to talk about is when Elizabeth is at... Pemberley, which is the real life, I believe, Chatsworth house. Yes. She's staring at a sculpture of a vessel virgin who is veiled. That was and, a beautiful sculpture. Oh, my gosh. Yes. And so I Google all around about it. And it, I thought it was going to be like a one of a kind thing. But apparently a number of sculptors did these veiled sort of women. Either it was the Madonna or it was the vessel virgin or whatever. Mm-hmm. Partly because I think it was just like, look at me, I'm the shit. I'm an amazing sculptor, right? Um, but um, it's gorgeous. And also, it's a metaphor, right? <laughs> it's a metaphor. <laughs> this is how we metaphor. <laughs> it's beautiful. Uh, so I would like to add that in the script, it did call for her to be in a portrait gallery. But Chatsworth House had that beautiful sculpture gallery. And so everyone was like, let's just do it in here because this is much nicer and more dynamic because I can yes. see butts. 
but, 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 but. <laughs> but honestly, I thought every sculpture of him was so ridiculous. It was the only thing I don't, the, the issue I have with sculptures and of people and why sometimes they look super creepy is because the eyes are just completely yeah. white and blank. And so it just, I thought it was a very nice bust of his head, but then you have these like dead eyes. <laughs> I love nice busts. I love uh, nice <laughs> busts and I can. <laughs> let me tell you, because you probably know, but some of my listeners don't know, is like all of that like ancient Roman, like white marble statuary, they actually painted them. So the reason the eyes have no pupils is because they would have yeah. painted them off. That blew my mind when I learned about, I went on a trip to Italy a couple years ago and learned that and I blew blew my mind. It was crazy (laughs) that all of these sculptures that we just think are always, I mean, not all of them, obviously, um, but everything was just like bursting with color, but we just have no idea because they're so old. It's all, it's all flaked off. Here's another beef I have. I, I, okay. Yes, please. This is a minor beef, minor beef. Why are the gardeners there when Elizabeth learns about Lydia's elopement? Because they lost a big opportunity for make it to make it intimate between Darcy and Elizabeth. I think they did that for comedy purposes because oh, really? it's more funny if they're all like anxiously waiting and ah. she just like walks through and is like, <gasps> which I, and it was funny. It is funny. Um, but if it's just Darcy, it's kind of like, why don't you just talk to him? But when it's all of them kind of oh, sitting see. out there, I think it, it heightens. And, you know, Aunt Gardner is like being very patient and just like waiting and Mr. Gardner's in the back, kind of like, okay, well, I guess this works. But then Darcy, like, springs up as soon as she <laughs> I think I think it just kind of at, heightens the comedy when you have, like, a whole room full of people just waiting for her to be able to spit it out. That's fair. I freaked out when I realized Carrie Mulligan actually plays Kitty. I know! And I was like, what a waste. I, I kept telling Kevin, like, what a waste. And he, at first he thought that Carrie Mulligan was supposed to be playing Lydia because she's such a big actress now. That yeah. he was no, like, this is her you? first role, actually, I think. This might have oh, been her first movie. Man, and I kept saying to him, like, wouldn't it be amazing if Carrie Mulligan were Elizabeth Bennett? What do you think? Do you think it would be a good casting? Oh, yeah, for sure. She's too young. I think she's too young in the actual year 2005. Well, then. Then yes. not now. I think she'd be fantastic, but she's also like a fantastic actress. I mean, yes, she's so good. Um, oh, I was gonna say something and I can't remember what it I'm is. sorry, you think about it. I will say that one of the big things that lost me in this movie was the scene at Netherfield where Miss Bingley is trying to suck up to Darcy when he's writing the letter and she's saying suck up things and he's batting them back. The dialogue is so fast that no normal human would have had time to listen to what the other person said and then formulate a response. So it seemed so highly stylized to me, inauthentic and forced, and I hated it. And it's this uh, similar, this is rap, 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 and then like camera two really bugged me a lot. And it's like they made Caroline Bingley kind of the classic quote, and I didn't make up this term, slut bitch, where she's like really mean and also really like promiscuous, always revealing to one man. And I don't think that's fair because like Caroline Bingley has an actual financial motive for wanting to get Darcy to marry her. And it's pathetic in the book, the way that she's going after him. And we lose that. She just seems evil. Right. 
And I, I not, that, not that she doesn't seem evil in 95 because she kind of does. But the thing is, they took some of her dialogue and gave it away. Like, for example, Mary Bennett is the one who said it would be much more rational if conversation instead of dancing made the order of the day. And then Caroline Bingley is the one who comes but back. Much and less says, like a ball. Like, but that's a, that's a it's a missed opportunity because that's Caroline trying to see more like, oh, 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 let me make a point, too. Wait, I, I want to say something. Okay, say something. I want to say something. <laughs> if I can slow this train. I think it was actually a really bad move to eliminate the Mrs. other. Hurst? Yes, the Mrs. Hurst and Mr. Hurst to eliminate the other sister. The reason why is because all of the scenes that have Caroline Bingley, first of all, when you have the sister, it's like the two of them feeding off each other and being meaner and trying to like one up the other one and being kind of like a partners in crime on this, trying to get Darcy to like her. And it also, those scenes at Netherfield have no energy. They know you have have only three people in the room and And you don't understand why Bingley and Darcy are friends yeah, there's no energy to those scenes at all when you've got Bingley, Darcy, and uh, Caroline Dar- uh, Bingley. Um, whether Lizzie is there as well or not, it doesn't matter. There's no energy in those scenes. It's like someone popped a balloon and all the air is gone. Um, when you had more people in there and more people interacting, even if it's just Mr. Hurst snoring in the corner, which is also hilarious, yeah. it, they just they just had no energy to me at all. I completely agree. And I think it's also a shame that um, Caroline loses the lines like, oh, how much sooner anyone tires than anything of the book? Or she like, no, 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 let me back up. This is the amazing point I was about to make. Jane, <laughs> Jane Austen makes fun of people who ostentatiously and visibly pretend to love books, mm-hmm. right? Carolyn Bingley is always like, how soon are anyone tires than anything of a book? But she doesn't really like books or reading. She's just trying to get in with Darcy. And with Kira Knightley carrying that stupid book in the beginning and being like, I'm so bookish. Jane Austen would totally be making fun of this. Because being ostentatiously bookish to suck up to people, like the audience, is exactly the target of her satire. And that line that's on her English banknote or whatever is uh is a travesty okay yeah that's what i wanted to say thank you for coming to Kristen's ted talk your points are amazing and i'm so glad i let you talk (laughs) i'm so glad that i interrupted you (laughs) i'm so kidding that's a joke i'm sorry no i'm so glad that you said that and i completely agree the scenes at pemberley or uh, at netherfield with with just the three of them have no energy I wonder, though, if it's supposed to make us sorry for the antiseptic, sterile existence Darcy is living and being like, Lizzie brings so much more energy into the room. And like that is an that is a excellent point. However, if that was the purpose, I do. I did not get it. Yeah, I, I think because I didn't think that they, the scenes had much more energy when she was there. Oh, anyway. they really didn't. Yeah, I, I think the scenes at Netherfield, I was really frustrated at that point. And that maybe when the movie lost me. And even though I, I, I was I grabbed again for the sort of creamy middle. Um, can I, is there something else you want to say? Or can I sort of talk about the end? Um, before we get to the end, I just wanted to point out that I was enraged at Netherfield when Lizzie's in with Jane and Bingley walks <gasps> in. Oh, yeah, that was so scandalous. 
again, like I understand we're trying to make this realism. You want to see Bing Lady awkward in front of Jane. She's in her nightgown and sick. Yeah. yeah like he would crazy. not, I was freaking out and Bay's like, what is the big deal? I said, a single man would not walk into a woman's bedroom that he hardly knew. I don't know. It was crazy. What do you think about how he almost grabbed her butt at the Netherfield ball? Oh, he was just trailing after her, grabbing the ribbon that was coming. He wasn't trying to grab her butt. It was sweet, though. The it was sweet. He's he's a puppy at her heels, right? But it, I think it's supposed to be another example of, because then we pan to Darcy, you know, when he said, I observed their behavior and he clearly liked her more than she liked him. I think oh. it was how he was just like totally gone. Then the, the thing is, the Netherfield ball, though, yes, her family was acting ridiculous, but you have There's so no many chance. people there. Who would you have, have noticed? No ch- yes. You're like, you don't realize that Darcy noticed. You don't even realize that Darcy overheard Mrs. Bennett saying, oh, yeah. Jane will make a most advantageous match. You you don't realize that he just walks he's, by. He doesn't like react at all. He just, react he just at walks all. on by. Like you're thinking, well, I heard that, but he didn't hear that. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Very, That's a it's a very interesting thing. So when he's like the lack of propriety shown by your family, you don't even realize do that. Know? Yeah, he's been paid. He wasn't there when Mr. Bennett says, like, stop singing to Mary, which to me was the biggest lack of propriety that Mr. Bennett shows in Mr. Darcy's sort of presence. And so you're not like you don't have that moment of like, oh, oh, my God, Elizabeth has been humiliated. You know, like you don't have that. The so, thing yeah, is, let's I, talk about the end, though, like the I, controversial end. I wanted to be on the side of Mr. Mangley and Jane. Like I was so excited to see them get engaged. Even when he comes in, he, you know, he does the awkward thing where, cause it's adorable. He comes in, he gets too, you know, awkward. He has to leave. He play acts with Darcy where he's like, okay, we were going to go in. They were going to sit down. Right. And Darcy. That is great. Where he's like, Darcy's like, Mr. Bingley. Yes. To be so so that Darcy- scene was actually supposed to be much shorter. But the actor who played Bingley was so funny at being so awkward about the proposal. And then apparently, and this is true, it very much is very humanizing for Darcy, where like he is pretending to be Jane, which you don't think someone like him would stoop to. The only problem is, is that comes like five minutes before the end of the movie when we're already supposed to have seen him like him and see him as more human, so... I hear I yeah. No, I'm. I was. I was into it, and then I. I was like, oh, okay. I didn't see a lot of the rest of that from. But you see him in a way as sort of a mentor. Like he's he's got the epiphany about practicing and about trying, and he's trying to like help Bingley, and it's really sweet. But then Bingley comes in, and he has that line of Ben, an unmitigated ass, which I was kind of rolling my eyes, like, okay, whatever. But then he proposes to Jane and Jane says, yes, 1,000 times. times. Yes. And it's such a hackneyed, cliched, overused thing to say that I wanted to throw something. I was like, this is disgusting. Jane Austen would never okay, have written anything so insane. Jane Bennett would kind of use something. No. Different. Don't you think? Oh. Okay. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> They were the one thing this movie had going for it. Okay, then, so but let's let let us do though talk about the last scene, the controversial last scene, which is not the last scene in the UK release of this movie. Oh. Did you know that? I did know that, but before we talk about the last scene, we have to talk about the final proposal. 
Oh, okay, yeah. Maggie loves it. Okay, sure. No, oh, okay. Maggie loves Hold it. Up. Hold up. <laughs> I like the camera being trained on Matthew McFadden as he stomps his way across a foggy dawn, but then everything after that I think is not great. The understanding. Well, then, let us never be part of Like, whatever. Get out of here. This is dumb. I didn't like it. The understated nature of the second proposal sort of belies its romance. And in order to make it movie romantic, they had to write this ridiculous thing. You have, you have bewitched, bewitched me back. Uh, so bad. Oh. And I love, I love, I love, I love you. I do, I do not like it. I don't like it either. Don't what get it twisted, Kristen. I do not like it. Okay, he says that. But I actually really like the moment after where she kisses his hand and then she's like, her hand is cold. That seemed very organic. I just didn't like the line. But yes, let's talk about the final proposal, the final scene. They're at Pemberley. <laughs> They're both like hanging out in their PJs. Only call me Mrs. Darcy when you are incandescently happy. And then he calls her Mr. Darcy, and then they smooch. And the smooch was good, but that whole scene is stupid. I'd rather see, like, the wedding and everyone being happy than see that. So that scene is not in the UK release. Apparently they showed it. This is, I don't, I think this is so interesting. They showed it to British audiences, and they hated it. Yes. Hated it. And Americans loved it. (laughs) And it's also considered, it's on the list of, like, 100 greatest movie scenes. That last scene. And I also hate it. And I think that this is really a thing where, again, if you are a fan of the book and a fan of the source material, you're like, what is this? And probably people in the UK are more used to reading Austin than American audiences. I did not like it. Are you ready to be shocked? You love it. The first time I saw it, I was (laughs) enraged. I hated it. it. I hated it the first time I saw it. And I still hate it today, but I'll tell you that the only reason I hate it is because he smooches her and says Mrs. Darcy a bunch of times. If they had just stopped just it, yes, I that would have been fine. But like him repeating it and smooching her everywhere, I was like, this is so forced and so performative. But I didn't hate the dialogue. I didn't hate the idea of it. I thought they were cute. Mrs. Darcy and then gave her that hella hot actual kiss. Yes. Okay, so I don't, I just, I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. I do like that when it starts, he is standing and he is barefoot and he's just wearing like a shirt and britches and she's like um, kind of stroking his calf. Yeah. And I do like that casual affection and at how comfortable he finally is. It does feel very organic. And at first I was like, why is he wearing this, the, his huge shirt on top? Like a, he looks like a child, a little boy, but he sounds kind of like a little boy. I mean, he's sort of like coming to her very vulnerable. Also, and- they just, they just did it. And then he had to throw on some clothes so they could go sit on the balcony. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't get that at all. Um, but oh, come on. Um, yeah, but no. <laughs> This is the reason. That's the reason people went to the Republic of Pemberley. That's the reason people read read fanfic. It was just done a little bit better. It could have been good, but um, it went from something that was very organic and that drew you in to something that was very movie, scripty, and repulsed me. 
And I 100% agree. I 100% agree. And I feel like I have that reaction a lot with this movie. It's very up and down. Yes, yes. In yes, terms of like, oh, this is good. Oh, why did oh, they have to do it? it? Uh, you know, <laughs> I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Okay, so overall, Kristen, do you like the film better now after repeated viewings? Yes. Oh, okay. Well, that's good. Good for you. Yeah. <laughs> Me, I feel like I've grown as a person and I feel like I've grown as a fan and in the fandom, maybe not as a fan of Jane Austen, but grown in the fandom to like accept other people and other viewpoints and to not be the bad guy in Jane Austen's, in um, drunk Austen's worldview and like, yeah. I have maybe. to tell you that until this moment, Kristen, I never knew myself. <laughs> Let me tell you that. Um, <laughs> Kevin, Kevin hated this movie so hardcore that when I was making some points and I was sort of devil's advocate arguing for it, he was like, my, my affection, my good opinion once lost is lost forever. <laughs> oh, Kevin. My, my uh, thoughts and wishes are unchanged where I enjoy it as a um, historical romance, but I don't think it's, it's an unsatisfying Pride and Prejudice adaptation. My feelings are not what they were last April because Good I for you. April I still hated it. Uh, they are they have relented. Well, the, they are not quite the opposite though, I don't think. I don't think I'd ever put this movie on again because I wanted to see it. However, this morning when I watched it, and then I, I took the dogs on a walk with Kevin and he's like, Tell me all your hatred. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't think I have have hatred for it anymore. I think I've been changed and I think I did enjoy some parts of it. And yeah. Who can say if I've been changed for the better? Cause I knew you, I have been changed for good. There you go. That was a lesson from Wicked. I there didn't you go. know what it was. There it's you from, go. Oh, Kristen, it's from Wicked. Come on. Never I feel like it. every podcast ends with me singing <laughs> a show, a famous, <laughs> famous uh, Broadway musical, and you're like, I don't know what that is. We need a new <laughs> podcast. <laughs> I've never seen Rent either. Um, I oh god, I could do a I could literally do a whole podcast about Rent and how my affections for it have actually changed as I've gotten older. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so when you first see it and you're in college, you're like, yes, this bohemian lifestyle, live, make art, not war. Like, yes, love, no day but today. And then when you're in your 40s and you're like, get a job, you fucking hippies. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Have, you feel, have your feelings about Jane Austen, Pride and Prejudice changed over time where you need less Joe Wright and more of the 95 because you're less twilighty angsty i need heightened reality all the time i need more satire i need more funny ridiculousness this is an interesting question because i don't remember ever being enamored with this movie uh, i saw it in the theater and i like like i said i liked it i own it but i own basically almost every jane austen adaptation at this point um i wasn't in love with it when it first came out i was like oh okay that was pretty good Where's Colin Firth? <laughs> you know, right? No, let no me um, not just Colin. Obviously, Colin Firth is not the only reason why I like the 1995 adaptation. Yeah. And to be completely fair, while recently quarantine rewatching the 1995 miniseries, I made liberal use of the fast forward button 
when Mr. Collins was around. <laughs> I don't want to be like, that's a shining, perfect example, blah, blah. Like there are parts of that that kind of drag. It's six hours long. You're right. So I don't want, I don't want people to get the wrong idea that I like hold it up on this pinnacle. It's, it's the most, it's not a pestle is the most amazing you were the uh, person, piece of media. You were the person who introduced me to the Darcy remix, which is just fast forwarding all the parts that don't include Darcy. <laughs> <laughs> And now I'm pretty sure to like tip of the hat to drunk Austin. I am pretty sure that like when I was 16, that was definitely that's why I was there. Let's be honest. (laughs) But as you get older, you appreciate Uh, other things. And also just to put it out there for drunk Austin, excuse me. It was not Colin Firth in Pride and Prejudice. It was my sexual awakening. It was Sean Bean and Clarissa. Okay. We've covered this ground. Oh God. Yeah. Oh, and then you watch it now. He's so evil. It's not a good male character to it's like Heathcliff right it's sick it's twisted but for some reason like 13 year old Maggie was obsessed let me tell you something else that you will love so I was always obsessed with Fiddler on the Roof the musical right okay now I don't even know what to think anymore because I'm like singing all these things you don't know what they are and then you tell me you're obsessed with Fiddler on the Roof randomly okay cool Everybody knows Fiddler on the Roof. Doesn't everyone know Fiddler on the Roof? Jay has never seen Fiddler on the Roof. Okay, but he's well, also Kevin, not Jewish like I am, so you know. Kevin had never seen Fiddler on the Roof till we went a commu- we went to a community theater production of it in Tucson, Arizona, with my grandparents. Okay, but I bet he loved it, and now he just walks around the house and is like, "If I was a rich man." He okay. First of all, he fucking loved it, but secondly, Maggie. He was enraged when Hoddle married Perching. He was like that loser. She went to Siberia when he was in prison. He was like, what mistake girl. But he was way sidetracked by the name laser wolf. He, every time he was like, do you think there's actually a laser wolf? Okay, well, I'm going to have to get Bay to watch it because I, it comes up in conversation more than you might think. Uh, but again, like I said, my family is Jewish. Um, so well, maybe he and I will watch it in our quarantine viewing. Oh my God. It's long, though. The movie is really long. Yes, perfect quarantine watching. Um, we have had so many people write in and just say, I found your podcast during the quarantine. I'm really enjoying it. And so we want, like, shout out to all those folks. We're, like, so happy to hear from you. Like, you know, it's never like, oh, ho-hum, another email. It always, like, means a ton to us. So thank you. Um, Our listener, Nicole, who sent us the a picture of the most amazing needlepoint I've ever oh, seen. Oh, her needlepoint was so great. <laughs> uh, it was um, Princess Bride-related and it was the guy saying marriage. <laughs> marriage is what point, that blessed arrangement that tween within tweens is what brings us together today. She also so good. She also said, "Do you have any listeners near Seattle who want to talk Austin? I'm sure there's like a Jasna in Seattle that we could totally hook her up to list to talking about that." She has also said like. The duality of Austin is something that we talk about a lot. And there it also makes a ton of appearances in fan works like Lost in Austin and Austin Land, both both mm-hmm. things we still need to talk about on the podcast. 
And she also agrees that Birds of Prey was an underrated movie. So she's basically us. As She's the same person as us. Lots of people have written in to let us know about streaming musicals, Emma and Pride and Prejudice. Um, thank you to Amy who wrote in about that. My friend Priya sent me information. Priya, about yes, yeah, thank yay, you. Priya, thank you. And I don't so know how many... I feel about the musical adaptations. That might be a bridge too far for me because it's like when worlds collide. Because now I'll be judging it on two, I don't know. There's like two ways I could be disappointed. And thank you to Marielle and all of the other listeners who have asked us where the hell our parts five and six are of the Pride and Prejudice 95 commentary. We haven't done it yet. Guys, we didn't even finish the Pride and Prejudice book. And I just want to go on record as saying this is not my fault. Well, well, Maggie keeps saying we didn't finish the book, but we actually did. We like we got all the way to when she was like at Pemberley and like. That's not the end of the book, Kristen. (laughs) It's not, but I feel like, I was like, what else do you want to say? Because I feel like I said everything. So, like, what I need to do is I I need to go back. You don't want to actually finish these things because then it's like we've done everything. And what else is there left to do? Might be right about that, actually. Um, but yes, we well, we were saving the miniseries ones for when we were together. When yes. we're physically in the same, geographically in the same location, which has, you know, not happened that, it's been a hot year. At God, my God knows when that will happen again. So let me tell you what. So I have to write my thesis this summer and fall. So I guarantee you I'm going to need like a month where I don't do any podcast editing at all. And the nice thing about the commentaries is I literally cannot edit them other oh, yeah, than like, because yeah, it has to line up with the, it has to line up, line up. So I, I could like silence myself if I say something super dumb, but like I put them up without even listening to them. I have never listened to them. So if there's like Starbucks ice clinking in a cup or something, that's always like, me. <laughs> I did not, I didn't, I'm sorry. I, didn't, <laughs> I generally thought nobody would listen to them. And I just, I thought we would just be throwing content up on the pot. So no, if, if you like that's like the house. most popular thing. Come on. <laughs> I know you think that people are here for that like heavy Mansfield Park analysis, but <laughs> bitch, our Mansfield Park episodes <laughs> are our most downloaded episodes after our Pride and Prejudice episodes. So, and I know that ninety nine percent of that is just high school seniors trying to pass their English classes. I get no, it's it. because they come for they come for the passing the class, but they stay for Kevin. <laughs> He's only in the second one. <laughs> yeah, but then they're hooked. Then they're hooked beyond. Yeah, and you're talking about Mary Crawford's boobs. They're great. Uh, what do you want from me? And then, okay, so now I'm in the uh, Facebook message case here. So thank you so much to Olivia, who is a Manfield Mansfield Park fan and found our podcast and appreciates the Mansfield Park commentary. So suck it in your face, Margaret. Wow, this is so rude. How could you be so rude to your (laughs) co-host? Thank you to Brian, who, Brian with an R-Y, who recommended a tabletop uh, role-playing game called Good Society. Which Which I own, actually. Oh, it's Polite Society, actually. Uh, it is good society okay never mind maybe I don't own that one then I don't know all my all when we moved all of our board games just got like tossed onto a shelf 
downstairs and then we immediately went into lockdown and have been playing Animal Crossing. So I don't even know what's going on anymore. And but I think I think I have that one. I think it's a Kickstarter and I think I got it. And thank you to Georgiana who lives actually not so far away from Box Hill. Um, Dang girl. I know, in which dream. is awesome. It's a real place. Also, unlike Oakham Mount, which is mentioned as the place where Darcy and Elizabeth walk to in the final scene where he proposes her to to her the second time, I thought maybe some people would come back at me when I complained about the big scenery, saying, "Well, they walk to Oakham Mount in the final proposal." I was trying to like Google it, and then I found this hit that was like "Save Oakham Mount," and I'm like, "Oh God, it's a real place!" And then it was a I clicked on it and it was just Jane Austen, Austen fan fiction and someone had written about a <laughs> someone had written about a campaign to save Oakham Mount that was like an environmentally like focused Pride and Prejudice. Anyway, uh, variation. So in any anyway, um, if I didn't mention you, it's totally my fault and not because we didn't think your letter was awesome. And thank you, everyone who's been writing in. And we'd love to hear from everyone. We'd love to hear from you. And I hope we hope you're all doing well. Continue to do well throughout the quarantine and this um, crazy time we find ourselves in. So, it's anything. Anything else you want to say? Oh gosh, no. I think we have completely destroyed this movie. No, no, no. I'm kidding. <laughs> I mean, I thought we were, in my purely obviously objective non-biased opinion we were uh-huh. completely fair uh-huh. <laughs> we d- I, I think that we've made it very clear that we don't want to shit all over something that people love we just have a couple problems with it as an actual adaptation um but there's things that we enjoy and I, when it's on tv i watch it exactly and so um what maggie said exactly is that is that right Kristen? though because you said you were never going to watch it again if it was on, if you put it on, for example, it was on TV or whatever, I wouldn't if like. If I tied you to the chair, if I wouldn't like your eyelids open, home. like in Clockwork Orange, then I guess you would watch it. <laughs> I wouldn't spend the whole time screaming for help until I lost my voice. I would just watch it in that okay, scenario. Fair. Noted. <laughs> put some eye drops in every once in a while. All right. Okay. I think we are probably good to say we have delighted you long enough. Yay! Yay! Thank you.